On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn how their grantees are helping to address the coronavirus crisis at templeton.org. When we were sitting in, it was love and action. When we went on the Freedom Run, it was love and action. The march from Selma to Montgomery was love and action. We, we do it not simply because it's the right thing to do, but it's love and action. That we love a country, we love a democratic society, and so we have to move our feet. Spending time with John Lewis, who died last week, was one of the great experiences of my life. He was a United States congressman and a core leader, one of the big six of the civil rights movement. He led the first Selma march on what became known as Bloody Sunday. I had the honor to be part of a congressional civil rights pilgrimage led by this man and attended by 30 members of the House and Senate from both parties. We stood on holy ground of the movement in Tuscaloosa, Birmingham, Montgomery, Selma. It was a journey into history I thought I knew, but didn't really. Into the civil rights leaders' spiritual confrontation within themselves and into their intricate art and work of successful nonviolence. This is Betty Mae Fikes leading song on the pilgrimage a half century after she was a teenaged freedom singer of the civil rights movement. I'm Krista Tippett. This is On Being. I spoke with Congressman John Lewis in Montgomery, Alabama in 2013. I'd like to start by talking about faith, which is a bedrock of your life. Um, It's one of the bedrocks that you name prominently in your most recent book. And I'd like to just hear a little bit about how you would describe the foundation of faith, the, the spiritual background of your childhood? I grew up in rural Alabama, about 50 miles from Montgomery, outside of a little place called Troy. Uh, My father was a sharecropper, a tenant farmer. But back in 1944, when I was four years old, and I do remember when I was four, my father had saved $300, and with the $300, he bought 110 acres of land. We grew up very, very poor. Six brothers, three sisters, wonderful mother, wonderful father, wonderful grandparents. But growing up as a child, I I saw segregation and racial discrimination, and I didn't like it. And I would ask my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents why. They would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way. Don't get in trouble. But... Attending church and Sunday school, reading the Bible, the teaching of the great teacher, and being deeply influenced by what I saw all around me. It, it was this belief that somehow and some way things were going to get better, that you had to have this sense of hope 
a sense of optimism and have faith. And people would say to me, my mother would say over and over again, work hard. And sometime working in the field, I would say to my mother, this is hard work. And this work is about to kill me. Mm-hmm. And she would say, boy, hard work never killed anybody. So I worked very, very hard as a child. But one day in 1955, at the age of 15, I heard of Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. I heard the words of Martin Luther King Jr. on the radio. And he was talking and preaching about nonviolence, about peace, about reconciliation, and about the, the capacity, the ability to change things. And, and he was a preacher. He was too. a preacher. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be a preacher mm-hmm. as a young child. And I had this sense that if I believe, if I had faith in my own capacity and ability to get things done, I too could change things. Mm-hmm. So I, I just never gave up. I never gave in. I just tried to to hold on. And so when I went away at the age of seventeen, wait, I want to I want to stay with with fourteen and fifteen just for a minute because. I've read both of your books uh, these last few days. I actually have a 14-year-old son who's here with me on this pilgrimage. And it it was so uh, striking to read about you being 14 in 1954 and reading about Brown versus Board of Education. And also, as I read it, being filled with hope and excitement at that news and also not seeing anything change immediately in the, in the world of Alabama. And really those years of you were 14 and heading into 15, as you say, 1955, you heard Martin Luther King's voice for the first time, the, the bus boycott, and also things like another 14-year-old boy, Emmett Till, who was killed in, in Mississippi. So talk a little bit about how that period in your life, which in any life is a tumultuous moment, You know, what started to happen to you then? During that period, I raised a lot of questions. I asked a lot of questions of my mother, my father, of the ministers around. They accused me of being uh, nosy. And uh, I thought of myself as just wanting to know. Mm -hmm. I was inquisitive. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I heard about the Supreme Court decision in 1954, I thought the next school year, that I would go to a better school. At least it would be a desegregated school. I wouldn't have to ride a broken down bus, and I would be able to get new books. But it never happened for me. It never happened. But I didn't give up. I didn't become bitter or hostile. I, I kept a faith. And I remember hearing about what happened to Emmett Till. And I thought, if something like this can happen, to a young man. This is a young, young man who was visiting relatives in Mississippi from Chicago, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it could happen to any of us. Mm-hmm. And I remember even before then, in, in 1951, when I was 11 years old, I traveled one summer with an uncle and aunt and some of my first cousins from rural Alabama to, to Buffalo. 
for a visit, for a trip. I had never been outside of the South. And being there gave me hope. And I saw how people lived there. I said, the way they're living in Buffalo, maybe somehow in some way we can make the South, make a region. Uh, I wanted to believe, and I did believe, that things would get better. But later I, I, I discovered, I guess, that you have to have this sense of faith that what you're moving toward, that it's already done. It's say, already, it's say already some more happened. About that. Say some more about that. It, it's, it, it's the power to believe that you can see, that you can visualize that sense of community, that sense of family, that sense of one house. And live as if. And, and you live that you're already there, mm -hmm. that you're already in that community, part of that sense of one family, one house. If you vis visualize it, if you can even have faith that it's there, for you it is already there. And during the early days of the movement, I believe that the only true and real integration of that sense of the beloved community existed within the movement itself. Mm -hmm. Because in the final analysis, we did become a circle of trust, a band of brothers and sisters. So it didn't matter whether we were black or white. It didn't matter whether you came from the north to the south, uh, or whether you were a northerner or southerner. We were one. You had made that vision real. For the struggle. Yes. For those of us in, in the struggle. But we studied. We prepared ourselves. Well, this is something else I want to talk about. The study, the preparation, the discipline. I think the term nonviolent resistance in the 21st century is a term everyone has heard. But reading about how you practiced that, how you learned it, the, I mean, there were, there were small things like maintaining eye contact, you know, wearing coats and ties and dresses, no slouching, no talking, um, being friendly and courteous, but there was also really serious role playing. Um, you made a, a comment, we are, we are meeting each other in the context of a pilgrimage, retracing many places in the civil rights movement with members of Congress and others, which you've helped begin, which is an incredible thing. And yesterday in one of these meetings, you made a comment which was humorous and serious at once, I think, that it would be good for Congress to take up some of the kind of role playing that you did in the 1950s, 1960s in the civil rights movement. So would you tell us a little bit about that? What you all did to prepare possibly uh, to be beaten, to be imprisoned, possibly to be killed? Well, long before any sit-in, any march, long before the Freedom Ride, or the march from Selma to Montgomery, any organized campaign that took place, we did study. I remember as a student in Nashville, Tennessee, a small group of students every Tuesday night at 6.30 p.m., we gather at a small Methodist church near Fish University in downtown Nashville. And we had a teacher by the name of Jim Lawson young man who taught us the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. 
We studied. We studied what Gandhi attempted to do in South Africa, what he accomplished in India. We studied Thoreau and civil disobedience. We studied the great religions of the world. And before we even discussed the possibility of a sit-in, we had role-playing. We had what we call social drama. Okay. And we would act out. That would be black and white young people, students, an interracial group playing the roles of African-American. I'd be an interracial group playing the roles of white. And we went through the motion of someone harassing you, calling out of your name, pulling you out of your seat, pulling your chair from under you, someone kicking you or pretending to spit on you, Sometimes we did pour cold water on someone, never hot. But we went through the motion. This was drama because we wanted people to feel like they were in the actual situation, that this could happen. And we would tell people, whether young men or young women, that if you've been beaten, try to protect the most sensitive part of your body. Roll up. Cover your head and look out for each other. So when the time came, we were ready. We were prepared. I also read somewhere that you, you were trained, if so, even if someone was attacking you, to look them in the eye, that, that there was something disarming for human beings. We, we, we did uh, go through the emotion, the drama of saying that if someone kick you, uh, spit on you, pull you off the lunch kind of stool, continue to make eye contact. Mm -hmm. Continue to give the impression, yes, you may beat me, but I'm human. Be friendly, try to smile, and just stay nonviolent. Mm -hmm. And during the nonviolent campaign so in a city like Nashville and so many other parts of the American South, you never had one incident of someone striking back or hitting back. There were even people who would say, I cannot go on a sit-in. I cannot go on a freedom ride. I may not be disciplined enough. But we were trained. We were, when we left to go on a freedom ride, we were prepared to die for what we believed in. And the way I come to understand this as I again, study you, is the point of all of this role-playing was not just about being practically prepared. And, you know, I suspect that some neuroscientist now in the 21st century probably understands what happens in our brains, somehow which, what you knew about that moment of eye contact and, and human connection. But you also understood this to be a spiritual confrontation, first within yourselves and then with the world outside. Is that right? You're so right. First of all, you, you have to grow. It, it's just not something that is uh, natural. Mm. Uh, no, you you right. have to be taught the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence. And in, in the religious sense, in the moral sense, 
you can say in the bosom of every human being, there is a spark of the divine. So you don't have a right as a human to abuse that spark of the divine in your fellow human being. We, from time to time, we discuss, if, if you see someone that attacking you, beating you, spitting on you, you have to think of that person. You know, years ago, that person was an innocent child, innocent little baby. Mm. And so what happened? Did something go wrong? Did the environment? Or did someone teach that person to hate, to abuse others? So you try to appeal to the goodness right. of, of every human being. And you don't give up. You never give up on anyone. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're remembering congressman and civil rights legend John Lewis, who died last week. On March 7, 1965, John Lewis led a peaceful march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma and was one of the first to be beaten unconscious by police. That day became infamous as Bloody Sunday. So here's a line from your book, Across That Bridge. The civil rights movement, above all, was a work of love. Yet even 50 years later, it is rare to find anyone who would use the word love to describe what we did. What you just said to me illuminates that. I think part of the explanation of that is the way you are using the word love is very rich and multilayered and also challenging, challenging for the person who loves. Well, I, I think in our culture, I, I think sometimes people are afraid to say, I love you. We're afraid to say, especially in public life, many elected officials or would be elected officials, they're afraid to talk about love. Maybe people tend to think something is so emotional about it. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's a sign of weakness. And we're not supposed to cry. We're supposed to be strong. But love is strong. Love is powerful. The movement created what I like to call a nonviolent revolution. It was love at its best. Mm. It's one of the highest forms of love. That you beat me, you arrest me, you take me to jail, you almost kill me. But in spite of that, I'm going to still love you. I know Dr. King used to joke sometimes and say things like, just love the hell out of everybody. Just love them. Love the hell out of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gandhi was such an important figure for you, for all of you, for Dr. King as well. And I also think that may be a little bit lost in our collective memory. I think it's important to remember that, the, the very rich spiritual lineage that you were all drawing on and became part of. I was really struck by you. You often refer to Gandhi's, one of Gandhi's important terms, satyagraha. You know, again, in terms of breaking open this word love out of the kind of superficial ways we, we, we talk about it or nonviolence in a superficial way, 
the definition of that that you give is steadfastness in truth, active pacifism, right? Revolutionary love is another way to think about that. Not just an external stance, but a fundamental shift inside our own souls. It's very powerful. It's not the way, certainly not the way I hear people talking about public life or political action. Well, I think all of us in, in life, not just in the Western world, but all over the world, we need to come to that point. We need to evolve to that plane, to that level, where we're not ashamed to say to someone, I love you, I'm sorry, uh, pardon me, will you please forgive me, excuse me, what is it? Have we lost something? Can we be just human and say, I love you? I think so, so many occasions, we, we think of love as being romantic and all of that. Right. But just love because it's good in itself. Just love living creatures. Now, when I was very young, you probably know that I, I fell in love with raising chickens. Right. And, and I love those chickens. I talked to those chickens. I preached to those chickens. And I, I used to cry when my mother or father wanted uh, to uh, kill one of those chickens for dinner. They became part of my life. Mm-hmm. And my first nonviolent protests were protesting against my parents for getting rid of some of those chickens. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about suffering, which is something that went right alongside that love in the movement, even with your chickens, and I think in the way you live now. You use the term redemptive suffering, and that your mother, who was a, clearly a woman of incredible dignity and grace and courage, um, really internalized the idea of unearned suffering as a holy thing, that she would redeem that suffering. You also wrote, suffering can be nothing more than a sad and sorry thing without the presence on the part of the sufferer of a graceful heart, an accepting and open heart, a heart that holds no malice toward the inflictors of his or her suffering. I mean, I, I guess that brings us back to this idea of love. But, you know, I want to ask you, before the, the triumphant Montgomery Selma march that we've all seen, the, the beautiful pictures of King and Heschel and all those other people walking across the bridge. There was Bloody Sunday, and you were in the front rows of that, and you were the first person to be hit. That was an incredibly brutal act. Were you able, on that bridge, as you were knocked, as you were given a concussion, as other people were very badly injured, to really internalize that accepting an open heart? Do you know that that's possible? I was prepared to accept the violence, the beating, and I thought we were going to be arrested and simply taken to jail. I didn't have any idea that we would be beaten. And that you would be met by these masses of State troopers, horses, horses, and the posse of the sheriff, that we would be trampled by horses and tear gas and beaten all the way back to the church. I thought I was going to die. Mm -hmm. I thought I saw death. I thought it was my last nonviolent protest. But before I guess I lost uh, consciousness, I 
became deeply concerned about the other people on the march. But in all of the years since, I have not had any sense of bitterness or ill feeling toward any other people. I, I just don't have it. It's not, I guess it's not part of my DNA to become bitter, to become hostile. But, uh, but you've also you've trained your DNA a bit more than well, the rest of us. Well, maybe I tried to get it or control it, but it's just not the teaching, the training, the reading, and coming in contact with great teachers. Martin Luther King Jr. had a, a tremendous influence on me. And the reading and the study of Gandhi. When I saw the film several years ago of Gandhi and saw the march to the sea, it reminded me of the march from Selma to Montgomery. That there come a time when you have to be prepared to literally put your physical body in the way to go against something that is evil unjust, and you prepare to suffer the consequences. Mm -hmm. But whatever you do, whatever your response is, is with love, kindness, and a sense of faith. In my religious tradition is this belief that it's going to work out. It is going to work out. It's all going to be all right. And people will ask me from time to time, what should we do, John, during the sit-ins or during the Freedom Rides? And I would say, we need to find a way to dramatize the issue. We need to find a way to get in the way. But it should be in a peaceful, loving, nonviolent fashion. Hate is too heavy a burden to bear. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like even in that moment, on that dark day on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, were you able to love those officers who came at you in this, in this sense you're describing? I, I saw these officers as individuals carrying out an order. And since then, I've had an opportunity to meet some of the sons and daughters of some of the people. I had a discussion on one occasion with uh, Governor Wallace about what happened on that Sunday. And Governor Wallace would have ordered them, or would he, he would have been behind that. Well, he, he was the governor. He, yeah. he, wanted, he wanted the march stop. He said he never gave them the order to beat us. Okay. He said to me, John, there were people waiting on the other side of the bridge to kill you. And I said, Governor, when we were stopped, it appeared to me it was an attempt to kill us before other people kill us. Right. He said it was a struggle between the federal government and the state government and not against us. On but this, I, I never had any bitterness toward him or any of the officials. Even during the, going back to the Freedom Rides when we arrived in Montgomery in 1961, there was a man named Floyd Mann who was a public safety director of the Alabama State Troopers. He came and stood and put a gun up in the air and said something like, there will be no killing here today 
There'll be no killing here today. And several years later, I saw a Floyd man after I got elected to Congress at the dedication of the Civil Rights Memorial. And he asked me, he said, Congressman Lewis, do you remember me? And I said, Mr. Man, how can I forget you? You saved my life. Mm. He cried and I cried. This is the choir from the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, where Martin Luther King Jr. pastored and preached during the 381-day Montgomery bus boycott. And they led this congressional delegation with John Lewis in singing King's favorite hymn. a short break, more with the late John Lewis. You can hear the whole unedited conversation I had with him in Montgomery, or just listen again on the On Being podcast feed, wherever podcasts are found. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, we're remembering civil rights legend Congressman John Lewis, who died last week. I interviewed him in the midst of a civil rights pilgrimage in 2013 through his native state of Alabama. A delegation of over 200 people attended, including the Republican House Majority Leader, the daughters of Lyndon Johnson and George Wallace, and civil rights luminaries like Ruby Bridges, who was the first African-American girl to desegregate an all-white Southern school. I was present and very privileged just today here in Montgomery to witness the head of public safety here in Montgomery, the chief of police, uh, offer you a public apology and a new generation of Montgomery policemen talk about his work to bring the truth of that history to policemen coming up now. It was an incredible moment. It was it was a mo- very moving moment to me. You know, I, I cry sometimes, and sometimes I think I cry too much. But there are tears of gratitude, um, tears of appreciation, joy, happiness, a sense something about the distance we've come mm-hmm. and the progress we've made. What the chief did today was so meaningful. He gave you his badge, too. And, I, you know, I said to him, I'm not worthy. Uh, I wanted to say to him, you don't have to do this. But he did it. Um, it says something about the power of love, the power of nonviolence, that it happened to move us toward reconciliation. And I keep wanting 
I want to push you a little bit because the word love, as you said, you know, it's romantic. Love, as you are talking about it, as you have aspired to live it, is not a way you feel. It's a way of being. It's right? a way of being, yes. It's a way of action. It's not necessarily passive. It is. It has the capacity. It has the ability to bring peace out of conflict. Has the capacity to stir up things mm-hmm. in order to make things right. When we were sitting in, it was love and action. When you were doing the sit-ins, like in at lunch counters, at, lunch at counter. big department stores that had right. been segregated, and when we went on the freedom ride, it was love and action. The march from Selma to Montgomery was love in action. We, we do it not simply because it's the right thing to do, but it's love in action. That we love our country. We love a democratic society. And so we have to move our feet. Mm. That phrase, um, an African proverb, when you pray, move your feet. You've got that in both of your books. I even tweeted it the other day. People love it. It's an an amazing phrase. It's also interesting how that that imagery recurs. Um, You talk about Montgomery and speaking with their feet. You know, Heschel, after the march, said he felt like he was praying. His feet were praying. I wonder if you think about... you. Became a congressman, is, is it right, in 1987? Is that right? I took office in 1987, is, is, elected is, in 86. Okay. So is being in politics part of your way of praying with your feet now? I see my involvement uh, in American politics as an extension of my faith, not simply as an extension of my involvement in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. My my life, whether the civil rights movement or whether in American politics is an extension of my faith. It's the sense that you believe that somehow and some way with love and this sense of, I got to do it. You know, I talk about the spirit and I talk about the spirit of history. Yes, you do. And and sometimes it's this feeling that you have been tracked down, as Dr. King was there. You've been what? Tracked. You, you have been caught up. You have been led. You have been uh, f- not necessarily forced, but something caught up with you and said, John Lewis, you too can do something. You too can make a contribution. You too can get in the way. But if you're going to do it, do it through and with Love, peace, nonviolence, and that element of faith. I wonder if you have the distinction of being the U.S. congressman who spent the most days in jail in his life. I don't life. know. I, I never thought about it. I, I, <laughs> well, I've not thought about it. <laughs> I can't believe there could be many of many who've been in jail more than forty times. Well, I didn't want to go to jail. I know. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't want to. Well, jail is not a pleasant place. But jail became one of the way out. One of the, to be arrested, to go to jail, 
when it's unearned suffering. Mm -hmm. it, it sent a message. It helped make the person who's suffering better. Mm -hmm. I felt so good the day I was arrested. But again, that internal discipline was at play, right? You, yes. You were turning that unearned suffering into something. Well, we were using it to help move the society, but also not just the larger society, but to help move us as individuals. Mm -hmm. That you can suffer and you can come out better. I feel liberated. I felt free. Something else I want to talk to you about is the idea of patience. Someone might look at your life and thinking and the civil rights movement and say there's always this tension between a commitment to nonviolence and a total resistance to and struggle with injustice. I want us, you to help us inside this virtue of patience as you've learned it and lived it. You know, there are places in your, in your memoir that are just so striking to me. Um, here's a line. You were talking, I think, about literacy training, voting rights, and all the things you, you trained people in, and you said, we perceived that waiting was an elegant way to prove a point. You know, that again and again, in these different situations that the civil rights fighters put themselves into, your civility demonstrated the absurdity of the other side. But there's, so there's a patience there, but there's also a total impatience. And, and at the March on Washington, your speech that you were going to give was actually edited and there was lots of hand-wringing. And here's what you had planned to say. We will march through the South, through the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did. We, will, we shall pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground nonviolently. <laughs> we shall fragment the South into a thousand pieces and put them back together in the image of democracy. So how, help us understand how, how that is not a contradiction to the virtue of patience. Also in, in the speech uh, near the beginning, I said, you tell us to wait. You're right. You're right. You got it right. I said, you tell us to wait. You tell us to be patient. We cannot be patient. We want our freedom, and we want it now. So when you look at that speech of August 28, 1963, you're seeing a speech by a young guy, 23 years old. I learn. I become better. I'm wiser. You can say all of that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I would tell my members of my own family and members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and members within the movement, within SNCC and uh, SCLC and others, have always said, pace yourself. Right. Pace yourself. I would tell my wife, i say, every fight is not your fight. Pace yourself. And I would say to the young people and others sometimes, don't get in a hurry. Our struggle is not a struggle that lasts for one day, one week, one month, or one year, or one lifetime. Mm -hmm. It is an ongoing struggle. So but patience, at the same, right, yeah. And in the speech of, of, of the March of Washington, 
I had a lot of rhetoric, uh, rhetoric. And, uh, and in the end, I knew with my own soul that it was going to be a long haul. And I believe that. Mm -hmm. That you, you don't change the world or the society in a few days. It's and it's, it's better. It's, it, it, it's it, better to be a uh, it's better to be a pilot light than to be a firecracker. <laughs> right. Because if you're a pilot light, you're gonna be around. A firecracker come along and you mm -hmm. just go off. You hear it one moment and you go on the next moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on being. Today, remembering congressman and civil rights legend John Lewis, who died last week. I had the great honor of speaking with him in Montgomery, Alabama in 2013 as part of a cross-partisan congressional civil rights pilgrimage, which he led for many years. Do you hear me? Although it's a creative uh, uh, tension, it's a line you're walking. Yes. And it sounds like when I read the history of the movement, you and others walked back and forth across that line all the time. But it was that keeping, as you say, the pacing, the, the somehow always being able to pull back and see the long haul, I suppose. It's that stance. It's that but, attitude. But we wanted to end discrimination. Yes. Now. We wanted people to be able to register and vote now. And we had a slogan called Freedom Now. But to have that sort of revolutionary effect that was going to take much longer when you're able to change the minds and hearts and souls of people. How do those experiences, those values that you learned flow into your life in politics in our time? Well, I, I think today... Uh, I'm a much better person, a much better human being. Uh, sometimes when I'm sitting on the floor of the house or in a committee meeting, I feel like sometimes saying, you know, I passed this way once before. You know, if I was back in Nashville or in Georgia on a protest or maybe on the Freedom Ride, what would we do? What would Martin Luther King Jr. say? What would Gandhi do? So you cannot give up on certain basic principles, certain basic teachings. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody would accuse the Congress right now of being a beloved community. Well, I think we are some distance away <laughs> from becoming a beloved community. But I will not give up on Congress. And it's my hope that when members of Congress come on uh, trips and journey and a pilgrimage, that they will learn something, that they will grow and become better members and better human beings. You know, some of the radical aspects of this nonviolent tradition that you were steeped in, that you now bring to your life as a congressman. Here, here's something I, I read in your book that after the firebombing of the Birmingham church in which four little girls were killed, where I was privileged to be with you this weekend, Reverend King said, at times life is hard, as hard as crucible steel. In spite of the darkness of this hour, we must not lose faith in our white brothers. 
you know, that very demanding notion, not just of having faith in yourself or faith in your movement, but faith in your enemies. You have to believe. And you can never, ever give up on any possibility. You, mm. It's part of it, as I said from the beginning, it's already done. You just have to find a way to make it real. Mm. I remember um, when you write about being a student and being exposed for the, to the world of philosophy and theology and reading about the notion of the dialectic and thinking about segregation as a thesis and the fight against desegregation as the antithesis and integration as the synthesis, the end. I wonder how you see that now because, you know, what, what <laughs> does the dialectic start all over? And what, what? Well, I, I, I don't think it necessarily start all over again. But I had a wonderful teacher uh, when I was at American Baptist College. His name was John Lewis Powell. And he would start discussing this idea of uh, the thesis and uh, the antithesis and the synthesis. And he would run around the board, the blackboard, writing and jumping. And that's what the struggle had been all about, to bring these competing forces together, bring human beings together. Mm -hmm and create a sense of community, to create this sense of family, that out of, out of the good, the good is already there. The love is there. How do you make it real? How do you paint the picture? It's like an artist using a canvas. How, how do you get people to move from maybe A to B, and you get C? of one to two and get three, that you're on a path and you have to be consistent and you have to be persistent. And patient. And patient. Right. And, and it's all about being faithful, being honest, being open. It's so clear with every accomplishment of humanity and certainly with the civil rights movement that so much change, important change, good change happened, and yet there's still much more work to do. Unforeseen complications appear, setbacks appear, that even all the best things we do remain imperfect and incomplete. How do you think about that and, well, and about I, the, where the movement is in terms of your faith? Well, I, I think about it, but you have to believe there may be setbacks, there may be some disappointments. There may be some interruption. But again, you have to take the long, hard look. With this belief, mm -hmm. it's going to be okay. It's going to work out. If, if it failed to happen during your lifetime, then maybe, not maybe, but it will happen in somebody's lifetime. But you must do all that you can do while you occupy this space. Okay. <laughs> during your time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel that I'm not doing enough to try to inspire another generation of people to find a way to get in the way, 
to make trouble, good trouble, I just make a little noise. I think you embody the things that you speak and that we, we watch you as much as hear you. You move your feet. <laughs> so, John Lewis, I want to thank you so much for the life you've lived and for this conversation we've been able to have with you this afternoon. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm going to live the life I sing about in my song. John Lewis died in Atlanta, Georgia on July 17, 2020, at the age of 80. He was a Democratic congressman from Georgia's 5th District. He was the author of several tremendous books, Walking with the Wind, A Memoir of the Movement, Across That Bridge, and a three-part graphic novel series, March. I'm gonna live the life I sing about in my Special thanks this week to Brenda Jones in Congressman Lewis's office, Gwen Haynes, Jeremy Burns, Burns Strider, and Liz McCloskey, Doug Tanner, and all the other great people at Faith and Politics Institute. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Dordal, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Colleen Scheck, Christiane Wartell, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, and Jale Akavan. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.